Welcome to The Last Supper Talking Art, a weekly podcast featuring artists, collectors and gallerists in Asia. This episode is supported by Art Law Services, a boutique law firm that offers bespoke legal advice with offices in Amsterdam and Hong Kong. More information can be found on www.artlawservices.com. Hello everyone, I'm your host Oscar Van Huys, a Dutch-Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. Danny Chow is a Hong Kong-born photographer and printer who spent his formative years in the UK. In this episode, I sat down with Danny in the studio and we talked about how a chance meeting at his father's Chinese takeaway was the beginning of Danny's career in photography and fine art printing. We discussed consciousness and how Danny attempts to capture this in his new photography project. We delve into his practice of perpetual contentment of life, and Danny has an answer what art is for. Welcome, Danny. It's a real pleasure to have you today on the podcast. How are you today? Always great, as long as I'm standing. I can tell you, you are still standing, although we're both seated at the moment. But I always look forward to your optimistic attitude towards life. Well, it's been... I would say years of practice or years of choose, um, using my free will choice to choose to be happy over anything else. So is it fair to say that you don't have a bad day? No, never a bad day. I used to years ago, but when I, then I realized um, after years of so-called consciousness cultivation or spiritual cultivation, I realized that we are fully responsible for our wellness or unwellness of being because the reality is actually inside of our consciousness. We, we don't ever travel out of it. We're actually imprisoned by our, by, you know, by our own consciousness. So everything that we see um, is at the mercy of our interpretation so when someone sees someone say something they don't like or see a, a piece of information, news that they didn't like, they always put the blame on something else. They don't see that is something is from within themselves that causes that. It's, their, it's the weight of their, you know, how they interpret it. Can you recall the last time you had a bad day and why was this? Well, probably a few years ago. Funny enough, I find my... Uh, I, you know, if you call it, if you will, enlightenment is basically you realize who the hell you are. <laughs> I found that in Hong Kong, believe it or not. What I find really appealing is that you have a passion for talking about the metaphysical, while your bread and butter profession is very physical. It's print. How do you begin or Tell me how you ended up in print. Well, I, um, my interest was in art. I stopped painting when I was 10. And then by the time I was 12, I, learned, you know, I picked up photography. I learned photography from school. And I basically fell in love with photography. And ever since that was you know, my, my goal. So when I finished school, I studied photography. Then I become a photographer. Then I realize I shoot for the love of it and not for money. And um, then there was an opening for me to become a printer instead of being a photographer. When you talk about your opportunity of becoming a printer, we're talking about developing film in the darkroom and printing the negatives. I remember doing this as well, and even today, having your own darkroom was a serious investment. Yeah, well, thank God my, um, my, you know, my father runs takeaways and restaurants, and, you know, so I was brought up with, you know, in a, in a business, you know, family, and we got spare cash, so I was able to pursue my, my passion. <laughs> Among all the options you had in the arts... What attracted you to photography in particular? Well, it's all about creation, isn't it? It's all about art. So that, that was the, the angle, because I always love art. Um, and I'm sure that relates, you know, close to 
my consciousness research. For years, I thought I'm a, I'm a spiritualist, but it's only later that I realized I'm a I'm a researcher on consciousness. And of course, you have the mental aspect of yourself, and then you get a physical aspect. So, so photography and martial art is my physical um, passion. But all the time, I could not, you know, drag myself away because I, start, you know, I actually start meditating since I was fourteen. Can you speak more about this? Why did you choose to practice meditation at the age of 14? Meditation is fairly common in Asia. And was this a normal practice in your family? No, just purely out of myself. I just want to figure out what the hell life is all about. So <laughs> my family has always thought I'm a bit crazy. You know, they, my dad said to me, so everyone is study hard. You just like, you know, looking into spirit, spiritualism, UFOs. <laughs> you practice for many years mindfulness. What tempted you to practice this? I don't know what draws me into it. It's just maybe it's just that curiosity of really deep down me. I just want to get to the bottom bottom of it. What am I? Yeah. It has to be have a greater purpose than, you know, go to school, you know, grown up, get married, have kids, make money, and then you die. What the hell is that for? You know, I just, that, I, I don't get it. So, you know, I've, I've, I observe everyone around me, you know, from my older brother to my mum and to my dad, Everyone was just like chasing their own bloody tail. You know, business, money. But, but that can't be everything in life. Not for me, at least. This journey into meaning ended in you having to look for a job in the UK. What can you tell me about this? Um, well, I started as a photographer. Funny enough, I um, when I was at college, I was one of the the top student. And by before I finished my second year, my diploma, and um, sitting guilds, um, there was a local uh, professional studio want to hire me as as you know one of the photographer. But my lecturer said to me, he said, no, go on your own. Finish your course and don't ever work for anyone. And he has a lot of influence of, you know, on me over that. Um, the funny thing is I did look for a job when I you know, moved down to London as, a, as, a, as an assistant. And um, after like a couple of days, the photographer turned around and said to me, he said, he said Danny, you know, you... You know, you're not the person who work under anyone. He said, you must well go on your own. So that's another person. Is, you know, this is like my, my lecturer and this photographer I have a lot of respect for. So I did, you know, so I, <laughs> you know, I turned photography turned, you know, to, do, to do my own work. But the funny thing is, when I first moved down to London, um, I, I've already, I've already given up being a photographer because we moved down from Sunderland to London um, in the 80, early 80s because there was there was a huge recession up northeast of England, and my father lost all his business, and it forced us to move. And uh, so we end up in the restaurant and I were already given up and I thought, well, um, my boy then was three years old and I thought, I'm going to be a restaurateur because that's my responsibility. And um, uh, yeah, I just, you know, like everybody else, make money and, you know, to, to bring him up 
as best as I can. And the funny thing is, is um, we have a takeaway section in the restaurant. And over the time that what I was there, I, I met, you know, I got this client, you know, come for takeaway almost like a few times a week. Um, and his name's Tom Hooper. And he was the editor for the Royal Institute of Charles Severe magazine. And, you know, I, you know I'm, a, I'm a chatterbox. And so we, you know, we, we talk anything under the sun. And he realized I was, a, you know, my interest and my, you know, um, education was in photography. And he said, do you have any work you can show me? And I, I have my, as it happens, I got my portfolio with me. So I, I quickly went upstairs and grabbed it and showed him the pictures. Most of it, which are architecture work, commercial work, which I was very fond of at the time. And he said, oh, that's exactly what, I, what we've been, you know, looking for. I said, forget it. I said, I don't even have a camera. <laughs> so as much as, you know, you say that what you're looking for, but I got, I got no gear. Um, I mean, the, the strange thing, you know, is I always believe that we all, life is such a fate you know, the, you can't control it. Everything just happened in their own time. And looking back now, if uh, if there wasn't a recession up north, we definitely would not have moved down to London. Without moving down to London, I would never would have, you know, met up with Tom. And because he said, look, you know, you got no cameras, but I can give you a, you know, a forward a large lump, lump sum of money so I have to buy the gear to start shooting. And I've been working um, nighttime in my dad's restaurant and daytime I was a photographer <laughs> for three years. It was through the, through the work and then I also worked for a local nightclub, produced uh, this, um, then there was a like, black and white slide for the light box. Everything was done by chemical. Everything was chemical. And, um, and then one of the... I, I took some pictures in um, Halloween party and I happened to print up three or five pictures um, and one of the designer, and she loved the work and she just wanted to buy them off me, I just gave them to her. And a week later... She called me up. She said, oh, my flatmate wants to see you. You know, he works for the BBC. And he wanted to see you, you know, um, he, he may be able to give you some work. Now, the funny thing is, I mean, I was a photographer and by that time, into three years, working for the Royal Institute of Charles Xavier, doing the development books. They, they, they do a lot of you know, publication for the students. And um, one day I was um, shooting in Essex, and suddenly I just I just thought came through my mind is that I'm I'm 25 now, where would I be in 10 years time? Still pushing the trolley and cameras and tripods along, and all of a sudden is I'm I'm sick and tired of this because I want to, you know, if I want to take a picture for myself, the first thing that came to mind is, what's it for? What's it costs? You know, that really bugs me. And at that time, six months earlier, before this phone call, I've already decided I want out. Six months later, this phone call changed my life. What happened with the interview you had with the BBC? Um, we had this meeting and he said, look, I know you're a photographer, but I just love your black and white prints. I'm the uh, quality control manager for the BBC Halton Picture Library and we are looking for someone who can do really, really quali you know, nice quality work. You know, we have, we've got two labs who are working for us now, but, you know, their quality isn't what we've been looking for. I've been printing my own stuff even when I was, you know, working... Um, well, ever since I started photography, basically. And um, 
Ansel Adam was one of my men. You know, I would say he's someone I look up to. I've done the zone system. I'm very technical when it comes to it. So I'm very particular with what I want. Um, but anyway, I um, he said to me, he said, look, BBC is one of those outfits that you get invited in. You can't, you know, you can't get into BBC without being, you know, introduced. So I had a meeting at, uh, with his boss and was given three months probation. <laughs> and after a week, I got called in again. And uh, the head of the, um, the library said to me, he said, Danny, everyone is so chuffed with your work. Basically, that three-month probation is, you know, you can just work until you one day you say, you know, you don't want to work for us anymore. At the time when you were printing in a dark room, what do you think made it different from other prints? I always try to make my print look as natural, you know, as, as well, the thing is, look, if you, if you really look into traditional printing, your negatives can be what you call low contrast and high contrast or normal negative. Because if your negative is thin, Normally, the contrast is very low by, because it's either, you know, it's due to your, ex, uh, your exposure and development combined. And so when you make the prints, we have, you know, six grades of paper, grade zero, one, two, three, four, and five to choose from. So in the old days, when you want to make a print, you need to have all those grades of paper. Some don't stock all of it because it costs a lot of money. So they jeopardize the quality by only stocking maybe two, three, and four. So, and they just basically tough if the neck is two, one over or the other and just get by with the grades that they got. But with me, I love technology. And at that time, um, Ilford have just offered the fiber-based multi-contrast paper, basically, is all the grades in one by exposing the two color lights, um, a yellow light and a magenta light. That can, if you get, combine the two light sources with a panel, you can actually go from zero, half a grade, one, one and a half grade, all the way to five. I mean, that was, I mean, I've been using graded paper for many years, but I was also the first one in, in the professional field um, and jumped in with the, with the technology. When you were in your dark room, all your prints were done by hand, which meant that each print was unique and they were never the same. Um, never. But that's what's special about traditional printing. And um, there was one photographer who wanted me to print six print identical. I took the challenge and um, he, when I finished, I think he won six print the same. Eventually, I think he only... He said, I can accept these four, but can you do the other two? I tell him to F off because I said, look, I'm not, I'm not a robot. I took, to, I took the challenge just to see how far I can push myself. But I said, you're not going to show these six prints to six buyers at the same time. And only you know that slight difference. You know, at that time, there were a lot of people selling portfolios to American corporations and making a lot of money. They're selling between, save. um a set of 20 or 30 prints were going between 40 to 50,000 US dollars at the time. And he, you know, he was so, I mean, you know, sometimes they, they, they also teach you a lot as well. It was through people like that. And uh, I, I, you know, it taught me when to say no to when people don't know how to say stop to themselves. But basically, they're chasing their own tail nonstop. 
and they're just wasting so much energy. So in traditional printing, anything above 90% is good. In order to get that 95%, sometimes you've got to spend two, three, hundred percent just to get that. And yet, I said, there's no such thing as 100% because the other is your, you know, you, you could change your mind. It's so subjective. I mean, fine example, Michael Wolf, And um, he can, you know, he can settle with one, one image or a series of image. And two, three years later down the line, he said, Danny, I want to make some changes because I'm changed. Another subject that I would like to address is that you worked in a period of film and the darkroom. I recall that the introduction of the digital camera transformed the photography industry in an incredible short period of time. Many photographers and photography print shops went out of business. What was your experience of this transition in the photography industry? Oh, that I mean, the transition is easy for me because as far back as, even before I worked for the BBC, I've already had interest in technology in general. So I remember the first, the first computer I had was a, was a BBC Acon. Can you remember? Yeah. And I was, I even bought myself a, an invoice module so I can actually raise invoice for BBC. <laughs> What I hear is that you embrace technology very early on. I remember the very early matrix printers, but they weren't high definition at all. The print consisted of printed zeros and ones. You had to stand a few meters away to make sense of all the zeros and ones. And if you looked hard enough, an image would appear. I assume that these weren't the quality level that professional photographers could use. No, 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 you can't. That was too early in his days. I mean, so when did you begin printing with digital print? Um, I remember I've, I'm, I've already interested in, in digital print way before it become, you know, digital print was the norm. Um, I, the, I think the third or the fourth printer that I've got was an Epson 1520. It's an A3Y carriage. And, I, I, you know, I was annoyed that I can't put thicker paper inside. Then I looked into the printer and realized, you know, they got a lever, they have... You can actually put normal paper and you put thicker paper, but I can't put very thick paper, like watercolor. And I looked at the mechanism, I took the lid off, then I realized there was little, they just had a little notch to stop it go, go further. So I took that part out and I hacksawed it. And I put a thicker paper in it and I still prints because the head was raised up higher. That's what that lever for. Um, and I actually managed to to... I did about, I think, eight prints um, with a photographer called Ben Woods, and we entered that series into the AOP competition, which is London's one of London's top professional, like um, you know, sort of organization. And we won, we won that year's Still Life Award with a with a digital print. With the digital print, yeah. Did they realized it was a digital print? Oh, they realized with digital print, yeah, and that's you know, and 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 that year, um, that's when it was so early in his days. Um, after the um, the competition or the yeah, and uh, they do a, a annual yearbook. It was so early in his days that there was no name for you know retoucher, printer, or whatever. So they just put down. Um, System operator Danny Chow in the book, <laughs> and then that that that's when the uh, when John Tarrant, the uh, the editor of British Journal of Photography, called me up because he's already done. He already know that I'm a fine art printer. I'm you know, I'm quite well known by then because I've I've done a lot of um, exhibitions and you know for for a lot of art, you know uh, artists photographers. But what's you know what he called me up for is that. He said, Danny, how the hell did you learn digital? Because 
most of the big labs can only hire very, very expensive digital retouches, right? But I said, I, I, I've been playing digital imaging for as long as it was available, like 10, 15 years ago. It was, I was at a, at a point of crossover. A lot of photographers came to me and said, uh, oh, I wish I can get that retouched and, and this retouched. I said, how much does it cost to retouch? They said, 500 pounds an hour. I said, do you have a file or you need scanning or whatever? I said, give me the file. If you don't have the file, I scan it. Most of them only, only work on 35 mil, so I charge 80 because I was playing. I recall that during my art school years, between 91 and 96 in Arnhem in Holland, the university created this new department with, I think, at least 10 Macintosh classic computers, those really square Macintosh computers. At the time, this was really high-tech stuff. You must have been working with computers and digital around the same time. 78, I think, yeah. No, sorry, ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, that was about the same time. Today, the rendering of images is instant. Back then, it took days for high-quality renderings. And before the arrival of the computer and retouching software, all the retouching was done by hand by highly skilled airbrush professionals who were using a mix of different techniques um, and different paint and ink. Especially those who retouch color transparencies, they're amazing. They're 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 so skillful. No wonder they get re- you know they they got redundant so damn quickly because the, the when the paint box first came out, once I saw the paint box, I said that's it, that's the end of all the retouches. <laughs> and when I first started uh, working with Photoshop, I think it was version Photoshop version three or four. Before that, I was using Corel Draw, Corel Paint, and I've been using tablets. It wasn't it wasn't called Wacom; it's called Calcomp. You have to put a battery inside that pen. My first tablet was an A3, huge thing like this. Um, I mean, that was that was a great journey. I must say, I really enjoy every bit of it. You know, watching the whole thing change. My first hard drive was. A 20 megabyte drive. (laughs) Today we are in your studio that's situated in an old industrial building on the far east side of Hong Kong Island. People can't see your studio, but I'll post some images of your studio on my blog. But I have to say your space is used very efficiently. (laughs) Come on, this is Hong Kong. Yes, indeed. We are definitely in Hong Kong. A mess. It's uh, organized chaos. Let me expand on this. Your studio is filled with paper, and of course, that's not a surprise for a printer. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of empty boxes stacked on top of each other, and all the walls are covered with boxes as well, and very large digital printers on each of the sides that I sit in. It's very quiet, so it's ideal for a podcast recording because there's no echo at all in this space. We are sitting in the center of your studio next to a large table that you use to lay down your prints. Tubes, packaging material, paper material, um, finished work that's drying in layers. Indeed, it's an organized chaos and mess because I know that you can find anything within a few seconds. Each time I visit you and you disappear for a few seconds, you come back with the right thing that you need. It's just absolutely amazing. And in this organized mess, you have just enough space on the wall for a few artworks. The first one I see is a photograph that appears to be taken from the tram in Hong Kong. What can you tell me about this picture? This is, this is one of my own pictures. Um, shot in Leica and basically what what this picture has actually been in exhibition and returned back to me it was um, it was one of the light um, exhibited with, uh, by Leica 
and they had uh, they had a whole exhibition over in the IFC um, base of the IFC, and then when they finished, they kept the very large the seventy eight inch one of the Night Shot of Hong Kong, but they returned this one to me, so I just kept it ever since. The picture that we are looking at, and I'll post this again on my blog on oscarvenhuis.com, is an image of about a meter and hundred centimeters wide, and about half a meter fifty centimeters high. It's a landscape format, and the image seems to be taken from the tram driver's position, and depicts the tram track on what seems to be Dovo Road on Hong Kong Island. Did you use a special filter when you were using this in post-production because it has this kind of vignette or slightly retro effect to it? This is the uh, is by the Wan Chai Times Square stop. What I like about it is because I had a a 50 mil f1 lens. Um, it's got a you know very very shallow depth of field. And sometimes picture is a feeling anyway. I know a lot of people say, "Oh, is this sharp enough?" I said, "Sharpness has no meaning if you just don't capture the mood." And there was a lot of people there, and they, you you rarely see people cross like this. I've been on this tramp so many times, and so when I saw them, you know, walking across, and I, I, there's a picture in front of me there, and it's timeless, isn't it? Yeah, you got you got the f- out of focus frame of the tramp that I'm that was shooting from, and then you got the edge blurred. I don't know. I just I just like the feel of the image. I muted the colors when I, you know, sort of processed the image. The image next to it, or the one in the middle, is a fantastic photo. I, that's really one of my favorite photographs in your studio. What can you tell me about this work? Yeah, this is um, this picture is signed by uh, Chow Yun Fat, the the actor. I've done the um, exhibition for him 2007 at the launch of LV, uh, the flagship store. He was the first artist that exhibited 12, uh, 12 print. Yeah, we did the book as well. And then this picture is from the 2008 exhibition he had in Central library in Causeway Bay. Um, this picture is only one half the size of the, of the final one he got, you know, that was exhibited. Um, the reason why I chose this one is because uh, the time when I left Hong Kong, this, you know, this picture is exactly as it looks, you know, well, I would say almost the same the time when I left Hong Kong. The building on the right-hand side my grandma used to have a flat there, and I used to play on that rooftop. That's, that's why this picture means a lot to me. This photo was taken on the Kowloon side, and it is a monochrome Hong Kong landscape shot with a building on the left. In the center, there's a motorway or a road with a few cars and a taxi in the front. And on the right side, you have a Tonglao building, which is a traditional residential type of building in Hong Kong. The shade is very warm and mellow. To me, this unique shade was chosen to create this alluring sense of nostalgia and retro mood of Hong Kong in the early days. You know, the, the left-hand side building is now gone. That's been pulled down a few years ago. So all photographs are, you know, are really... A piece of history, isn't it? And apparently that was shot around about 1998, 1999, so I was told, yeah. But, you know, like I said, this means a lot to me. It's, uh, that's how, it, you know, apart from the building right at the seafront where the land was filled, those buildings went there and also the these, uh, the tall building on the, on the left-hand side, that wasn't there. But otherwise, you could have, you could have said that that's ex- exactly how it was when I left Hong Kong. And, uh, 
here am I, 37 years later. <laughs> Let's go to the third photo on the right side. What can you tell me about this? Because it is so different from the other two photos. Yes. Uh, those um, multiple exposures or, um, or multiple images stacked together by an artist doctor, Amy Pang. She, she's not a professional, but uh, I really like that series of work. I mean, so yeah. This is just a small collection of artists you have and are working with, including the late Michael Wolfe, uh, Fan Ho, Stephen King, Wing Sha and Nicholas Chow. To my knowledge, you are the only print business in Hong Kong that has the expertise, the skills and the capability to print at a quality level for galleries and museums. <laughs> well, I mean, at least... The thing is, I mean, look, I always just wanted to do my best and people may not like the work, fine. But, you know, most do appreciate what I put into them. It's a, it's, it's a synergy, it's a collaboration... I can never claim all the credit because without shooting it in the first place, I got nothing to print. So it's just like life. You know, you can't just live on your own and you can, but life is boring then, isn't it? Go back to the same thing. I'm, I'm very philosophical when it comes to being. We all need to earn money, but the most important thing is after money, then what, you know? So I always have the answer to myself. You can have all the, you can have all the money in the world, but you, still, you can't take it away. So you might as well just take your memory with you. The, the thing is, I mean, when you stop thinking, your existence just like switch a light bulb out, really. Even though I, I do believe life after death, we, we continue the journey because I've done um, astral projection, proved to myself that we are more than what we so-called physical, but in truth, there's no physicality because everything is a dream. Even, even project yourself out of your body, you seemingly having another vision from out of your body, but even that's an illusion. So it's still a trap to a certain extent. And the only time when I feel complete peace and, you know, perfect is when I'm in deep meditation or when I'm actually mindful of my perfection within my consciousness. Let's briefly continue talking about the concept of consciousness. How does your meditation practice and your deliberate thinking and contemplation, how does that inform and affect your personal project and your photography work? Yes, I mean, like I said, I mean, I used to shoot unconsciously. And in the last few years, I had, had a lot of consciousness upgrades. And my photography has stopped because... I wasn't sure where, where I was going because I had all these upgrades to process. Um, now, I want to shoot a series trying to convey and explain what we are in a photo. Now, that's quite a good challenge, isn't it? And, and also, challenging myself is to dissect my own consciousness, my mind. And going areas where no one dares to go, it is a hell of a journey. I mean, come on, you're, a, you're an artist yourself, and sometimes you have, to break, you have to break through mental barriers to get to your next stage, am I right? Yes, breaking boundaries is a critical part of moving forward. 
What I hear is that you are trying to make sense of something that appears to be complex in that you are constantly grappling and toggling between consciousness and subconsciousness or deliberate and indeliberate activity of reaction and action. It seems complex, but the more you dive into it, then you realize you are always serving between the, you know, totally unconscious and conscious or a little bit more conscious. We cannot be fully conscious until we stop thinking. You see, the stupid thing is, when people think, I can think now, so therefore I'm intelligent. I've, I've done my, you know, you know, sort of, you know, university. I did my degrees, blah, blah, blah. And they, it is a false security, really. Because you, you believe that you are everything that you think you are. Your likes and dislikes, yeah, your bias, your judgment. No, none of those are you or me. When you are talking about consciousness, which seems to be very personal and subjective, what are your thoughts on the transformation that Hong Kong is going through? How has your awareness and consciousness evolved and developed over the last few years? <sighs> Looking back now, I mean, whenever you take sides, whatever the side that is, um, whether you call yourself, you know, you're believing in democracy, what is democracy? Or whatever that you believe in, whatever you grasp onto is still only a fraction within duality and you trap yourself in that duality. Rather... Since you could never escape your consciousness and that whatever you experience, whatever you see in your consciousness are nothing more than a perfection split itself into infinite parts. Wouldn't call it a duality otherwise. So you got from light to dark, good, you know, to evil. Everything is actually part within you, separated. Yeah? Instead of owning all of it, we choose to take sides within it. Can you see how you can get lost now? Let me try to unpack that. And let's take film as an example. A movie film has 24 individual frames. And each frame is a moment or fraction of the entire and total two to two and a half hour movie. And each cell or frame has individual components and can be broken down in smaller pixels. To see the movie, you need a projector. Each individual has a different projector and lens that they use to see the film. And each individual will experience the film differently because of the type of projector and lens they are using. So what I'm not really sure about is that you are saying that it is not possible to hold two experiences at the same time and that thinking deliberately is unlikely? Yeah, but still, you, that is still unconsciousness though, isn't it? Whenever you start to think, it's unconscious. So it's okay when people start to take sides. Some prefer to leave Hong Kong, to live in the UK or, or elsewhere around the world because, you know, um, those so-called people are actually projections within my own consciousness. That's all. And I'm not going to take sides. I'm not going to judge anyone because they should exist. Then I free myself from that judgment and that, gra and that grasping. Let's go back to unique perspectives and how each of us observes and experiences the world differently. In 2019, during the unrest in Hong Kong, when I was traveling almost every week between Shanghai and Hong Kong, I did not feel the tension within the city. I did see the protests and the barricades in the city center of Hong Kong, but somehow I was very detached from it because on Lama Island, where I live, life appeared to continue as usual. And in addition to that, I traveled from one airport to another airport, without needing to travel through Hong Kong City. This kind of created a very unusual situation for me. So I knew exactly what was happening from the news outlets 
and my friends, but I did not experience an extreme level of distress and fear. How did you deal and manage this? How did this period in Hong Kong affect you? None, because um, even even around the time of the um, you know the so-called unrests, um, I just see them as a dream, dreamscape. I come to work every day, go home after work, and sometimes the roads are closed, so I have to you know walk instead of you know getting the transportation getting me to the you know to my house. Um, it was a very kind of strange time, but I enjoy every moment of it because I know nothing will ever last. You see, so having that mindset. It definitely helped me to, go, you know, to go through the whole thing without being affected. Um, I mean, if you look back to any part of your life, it's just like now. You you said during the unrest in Hong Kong, you were traveling between China and many cities. You are having your own unique journey. Yeah. And. No two person, no two soul, would ever experience the same thing. The second last question I have for you, Danny: What is art for? Um, I used to say years ago, I you know I kind of say there's really three main types of people: academics. These are the planners, the people who runs our world. Then you got laborers. Technicians, who are builders, but without the artists, without the creative, the world is going to be a boring place. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think everyone is in you know is in their own position to um, to be a part of the game. Yeah, everyone has ha- have a place. And then my final question for you today to complete this conversation is: Which artist would you invite for your last supper? Well, last supper, I probably wouldn't invite anyone because I'm going to meet most of them <laughs> when I'm there. Because a lot of the lot of the artists I work for has already moved over. <laughs> And I wouldn't want to trouble anyone, you know, to come and see me at my last supper. And uh, I respect everyone to live their own life, and hopefully they all learn to enjoy the journey because it is that's all it is. It's just a journey, and um, every moment is eternal. So either you eternally you, you are eternally pissed. Or somewhere in between, can't make your mind up. Or you like me? Yes, I'm unconscious, but at least I, I'm conscious enough to choose happiness over misery. There are there are friends and people ask me before, is that are you lying to yourself? I said yes, I am. You know, if if that's the only the choice, lie you know lie to yourself to be happy or. Or to be miserable, <laughs> I choose to be happy. And the thing is, you know, you you say that you say that enough times, it becomes real. It becomes true. <laughs> well, happiness is a choice. Being unconscious, because in a state of consciousness, in a state of full consciousness, there's no such thing as happiness. You're just in a state of bliss. I mean, when I'm not. Connecting with another self, I basically I'm now I have arrived at a point where I just stop thinking. I have no thought. Totally possible, which I thought was impossible before. And the same thing applies to if you if you want to learn to um, practice out of body projection. The first thing you need to do is actually stop your mind thinking. Before your body, before your your subtler body or your consciousness will you know will be able to project away from your so-called physical, yeah, 
It's similar like that. And um, I must say, you know, I refined the whole consciousness thing. Um, since this is the only domain that we live in, inside of our heads, we, we can never escape it. So you must well be responsible to make it as comfortable as you, as you can. You don't need anyone to approve or to like what you say. Yeah, you only need to prove it yourself. You care less of what people, you know, criticize you for or saying, saying you this, saying you that. No. You know who you are. And for the fact that 99.999% of the people only have time to think about themselves, no one, no one cares about you. Yeah. So you might as well, like everybody else, just think about yourself. As long as you just, you know, um, you'd be more at peace with yourself if you, if you realize that you no longer judge and you appreciate and you love every other self for what they are, who they are, whatever they do. You don't want to make any changes because that they are perfect to begin with, which we all are deep down. I know that we are already complete, perfect and whole by playing an imperfect game. That's why I keep saying that we are both the creator as well as the created because the created was meant to be unconscious. Being human is to, ex is to experience what it is like being unconscious because we are already perfect. And the separation is it's just an idea as well because separation is damn nigh impossible because between you and me is full of energy. Yeah? We are the same self expressed as another Without this, we don't have a game. Thank you very much, Danny, for your time, insights and illuminating conversation today. Thank you for your being. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's podcast with Danny Chow. Find more information about Danny's fine art print services on www.chowdigital.hk and Chow is spelled with C-H-A-U. The images and works we are referring to in this podcast are posted on my website. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper Talking Art. Please consider to support this podcast by following it, leaving a comment or by sharing it. You can find more information on my website www.oscarvenhuis.com and also on my Instagram and Twitter feeds at Oscar Venhuis.